Uh, good morning again. We'll be continuing our series going through the book of Esther. This morning we're in Esther chapter 7. We'll be looking at that one. And before we get into that, let's go together again to God one more time, asking Him to bless our time together. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us in speech, that we might know You, that we might know Your truth, that we might know the gospel in which we stand or could stand. Lord, we pray that You would build us up in our faith this morning. We pray that those who do not know you would see the beauty of Jesus. We pray all of this, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther chapter 7 is found on page 10 in your bulletin. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles or pull out your smartphones and pull up an an ESV app. There's a version we use here at Sycamore. And while you're doing that, I want to tell you a quick story about an ancient guy. His name is Pythias. Don't you love ancient names? I don't, I've never met anybody in my life named Pythias. That'd be great to have a Pythias. Anyway, he lived in a place called Lydia, which is modern-day Turkey. He was a very um, important, influential, and massively wealthy Persian citizen uh, because of the gold mines in the area. And he had already sent Xerxes several very expensive, ornate golden gifts. And as Xerxes, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, was heading to Greece to conquer Greece in his mind, history tells us we know he got whooped, but he, was, he didn't know that yet. He's heading to Greece with this grand army. Herodotus tells us we're talking like 200,000 strong, mostly slaves, but still huge army. This man, Pythias, hosted the entire army for several days on their way. That's how wealthy he was. He's like, let me foot the bill for that Xerxes. And then he offered to even give him a chunk of change to help with other expenses. Xerxes refused, wouldn't take it, took a smaller gift instead. After several days of hosting, Pythias offered his five sons to Xerxes' army. Xerxes gladly took them. And then the day before they were going to leave, there was a solar eclipse. And Pythias, to use a Hebrew phrase, freaked a great freak. And so he went to Xerxes and asked if he was so messed up. Can, I, can my oldest son please stay back? This, this scares me. There's something going on. Can he stay back? Xerxes was so incensed, insulted, and angry at this little request from everything this guy had done that Xerxes had the oldest son immediately killed had his body cut in half and put on each side of the main road leading off of Pythias' property and had all 200,000 troops march between it on their way out. This is Xerxes. This is Xerxes before whom Esther has to come and reveal that she is Jewish and reveal that uh, she's going to be killed and reveal that his right-hand man Haman is responsible for it and put before Xerxes basically the choice. Is it Haman or is it me and my people? And Xerxes does what's good for Xerxes. There is no guarantee here. So first things first, let's take our ideas of romantic love and let's just take that and put that aside. We are reading that into the text. There's no evidence in the text that Xerxes felt that way. So there's no guarantee. Esther is coming fearful about this situation. So Haman is the vizier. He's Jafar from Aladdin. He's the right-hand man. He He hates the Jews from some ancient hatred going all the way back to the Old Testament. We talked about that a couple of chapters ago. <clears throat> He's got this edict to kill every Jew in Persia 11 months in the future. Big deal for them, big deal for biblical history because this little bitty backwater capital called Jerusalem is under Persian control. And if the entire Jewish population is wiped out, you got to ask yourself the question, how can the Lion of Judah roar if there's no Judah? 
How, how can unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ Lord happen if there's no city of David? If there's no people to do it. This is spiritual warfare. This is Satan using the empires of the world to try to destroy God's plan for redemption behind the scenes. And so Esther is God's person on scene that he has put in place to fix it. Will she do it? Because it's scary. She has to play the game. And it's a hard game with a hard man like Xerxes. And we're going to walk through this and see how Esther deals with this. Because as we've been talking about, empire comes to us and empire gives us these pressures. Again, when I say empire, I'm not talking about like Darth Vader and Star Wars. Although if you want to talk about those things, I will like totally talk about those with you. Um, But I'm not talking about the American government. I'm not talking about like the music industry or Hollywood. I'm talking about deeper cultural things that act like an empire, a predatory imperial set of religious commitments that want to be ultimate and want them to be most important and want your stuff to be cast aside. You can tell you're living under empire when there's this pressure to keep all that religious stuff private. That's fine for you. Just don't impose it on others and don't bring it out in the public square. Because empire is more important than your religion. And Esther is about to repudiate that core value and say, no, actually my people are more important than what might be best for empire. Esther is about to risk everything. She's going to put her lifestyle and her life on the line to save her people. Esther becomes a hero who trusts God and steps out in major faith in an incredible, incredible challenge. I hope that encourages you, just that one little sentence like it does me, because there have been times in my life where I have blown it. You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody else blown it? Anybody else, you know, fallen before empire where under pressure you've been nice instead of completely faithful? You've been polite instead of completely truthful? Well, if God can embolden and use Esther to face the wrath of Xerxes, maybe there's hope for all of us. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. The king's wrath destroys, but his kindness rewards. All right, so we're going to jump right into the text here, look at the first six verses, the king's problem in Esther 7, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus, again we're using his Greek name Xerxes, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. This is God's word. So if you remember what has happened, Haman has set this edict in motion. 
Esther's trying to stop it. Esther brings him over to dinner one time to kind of set up and build rapport and to get Xerxes to promise to, to do whatever she wants. And then that night, Haman sees Mordecai. He gets mad. He decides to kill Mordecai, Mordecai the next day. Xerxes can't sleep, remembers that Mordecai saved his life. So the next day, he wants to honor Mordecai, and he has Haman walk Mordecai around the central government square proclaiming Mordecai's greatness. So Haman can't kill Mordecai. Haman's all bum-fuzzled, to use the word that I grew up with. And he goes home, he's out of sorts, and all of a sudden the king's eunuchs show up and drag him off to this dinner. And so verse 1 jumps in, just kind of like you jumped in a second ago, like, wait, what's going on? Because he's just all out of sorts. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And Esther knows that Haman's an adversary. Haman hasn't quite figured out that Esther is an adversary. And to understand this dynamic that's going on here, because this is ancient and really what's going on in court intrigue, I want you to uh, imagine a situation with me. I'm not talking about anybody. This is purely hypothetical, okay? No animals were harmed in the telling of this story. Okay, so I want you to think about a college-aged brother and sister. Their parents are recently divorced. Dad remarries, and the new wife doesn't particularly care for his children. So she purposely sets up situations and manipulates things to make them constantly be at odds with their dad. They see it. Dad doesn't. After months and months, they got, they've got to confront dad about this. But they're scared. There's no guarantee. Will dad choose them, their adult children, kind of on their way to having their own life? Or will dad choose their, his new wife? There's a lot of emotion there. There's a lot of junk there. And that's the kind of junk that Esther is wading into with Xerxes and Haman. There's no guarantee. Will Xerxes choose his hand-picked prime minister over his wife? Or will he choose his contest-winning wife over his prime minister? There's no guarantee there. So what she has to do, she has to get Haman to kind of start to smell a little bit before Xerxes. She's got to get Haman discredited a little bit, seen as an enemy to Xerxes, one who does not have empire's best interests at heart. But there's a risk in so doing. She's going to reveal who she is, who her family is, and reveal we are already under a death sentence. And Xerxes, as he has shown before, might just be, you know what, let's just have you killed now. I didn't lie. How come you didn't tell me before you were Jewish? We don't know. But in faith, she just jumps right in. Look with me at the second part of verse 3. She just comes out and finally says it. Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. This is what I've been asking. Here's the fourth time you've you've asked me. I'm finally going to tell you. And she quickly gets the attention of the king. She wants to make the king angry, personally offended, hoping that in his anger, when it comes right to it, she will pick, he will pick her over. Haman. You see, through God's wisdom, Esther realized what so often we, I, fail to realize. People are not machines. You you don't simply input this data at this time in their life to get this response when they're older. Right? We, We read that verse that way, don't we, parents? Raise up a child in the way they should go, input the data correctly, and in the end, they will not depart from it. You'll get this data back out, right? Because they're just machines. It's just an input output source, right? But see, the thing, what messes that up is these things called um, emotions. Presbyterians, I know, calm down, it's okay, it's okay. I know we we don't talk about that, but we're emotional creatures, right? We're not logical creatures. We like to say we're logical. We're not. We're emotional creatures who use our logic to justify our emotional decisions. 
And you know it's true. And if you don't believe me, ask yourself, why do they have Braille on the buttons at the drive-up ATM? So, <laughs> thank you. Good. I was hoping you'd get there. All right, so, so recognizing this, Esther purposely appeals to his emotions more than his logic. She takes great pains to get him to see that his queen has been threatened. The empire's glory is at stake because the empire's queen has been threatened. She's speaking in terms of what Xerxes cares about. Xerxes doesn't care about the annihilation of entire people. That's how Haman presented it. And Xerxes is like, yeah, okay, let's do that. Esther had to make Haman's offense be against the king, not merely against her and her people. So she puts it in terms of what he cares about, what he values. That way his emotions are engaged. His sense of outrage is channeled. And then she hits him with the issue. Man, there is wisdom for speaking truth to power right there. If you're the kind of person who likes to speak truth to power. Empire has a different set of values. And the book of Esther is so applicable to us because, like it or not, we are living in a post-Christian culture. Certain assumptions that a society used to have that many of you grew up with are simply no longer common. Certain ideas of what used to be called sin, what used to be called evil, are no longer out of bounds. They're merely lifestyle choices. And when such underlying assumptions of good and evil are no longer in a culture, we need wisdom to minister to that culture. And notice what Esther does here. Notice how she accommodates to convince. Some of you, that's a bad word, I know, but let's, walk, let's look what Esther does here. Maybe it will help us. She says in verse 4, notice, you know, if, if we were just going to be enslaved, I wouldn't even bother you about it. It's not worth it. But this is bigger than that. This is about your glory. I mean, Esther could be like, uh, hello, Xerxes. It's not okay to be okay with enslaving people. But instead, she's like, you know what? Something true, something right, something good. I'm going to take that off the table in order to keep salvation on the table in order to keep the saving of my people on the table. So I'm not saying that this is no longer a good, but let's not talk about this. We're going to talk about this. I need to remember that in my conversations with non-Christians because I, and I bet I'm not alone, I resist accommodating like that. See, what happens is those of us in church world, we, we forget how much the gospel has changed us, don't we? We're so grateful for what the Lord has done with us, we, we, we forget where we came from. We forget how we used to think, right? We, we, we forget that, that verse that says the renewing of our minds means the renewing, the making new of our minds. And our old and busted minds were messed up. And what happens is we, when we interact with non-Christians who are living out of old and busted minds instead of renewed minds in Christ, we forget about that and we get mad at them for acting like non-Christians. Act like a Christian! Think like a Christian. Let's remember that. Because what we believe about certain moral and cultural issues is because of the work of the Spirit in our lives. It's because our minds have been renewed. And so we shouldn't get mad at people who don't believe the gospel. Of course they have radically different views about key issues. I mean, duh, welcome to empire, right? That's why we're put here to help them. And this is where Esther helps us, because her argument to Xerxes is completely on Xerxes' terms, appealing to what he values instead of God's revealed standards of right and wrong. Because he doesn't believe them. He doesn't care. He's already established, I will murder an entire people. 
One scholar I read calls it sanctified cunning, kind of an Old Testament application of Jesus saying be you know, as wise as foxes and innocent as doves. And guess what? It works. She makes her problem empire's problem, and Xerxes is hot and mad. You could tell he's mad because outrage is the proof of righteousness for empire, and his outrage machine is fired up. And in verse 5, he is ready to cancel somebody. He's like, oh, yeah, let's do this. Who has dared to dishonor me? Who has dared to assault the empire? Who has dared to insult my queen? Where's the cancel button? Let's, let's do this. And instead of Esther looking at him saying, you, it's your seal there, big fella, on that law. She goes for the hard truth in verse 6 and says, okay, here we go, Xerxes. Haman is your enemy. Haman has done this. And Haman understands, and Haman is terrified. Let's look together now at the king's solution then in verses 7 through 10. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So she gets to the moment, she says who it is, and the king gets up and he storms out in wrath. But at whom? Again, Haman is the hand-picked vizier, Xerxes' right-hand man. I mean, you know, like all of us, he'd seen Hamilton on Disney+. Plus. He's like, man, if you're going to make an all-out stand, you've got to have a right-hand man. He's got, he's got Haman. What's he going to do? He, he's publicly chosen. He'll lose face. Then he's got Esther, the hand-picked queen, the jewel to show off, to enjoy, the one who three times publicly he said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. See, this is a shame and honor culture. The issue for Xerxes was Xerxes' reputation. Was was he going to get shame in this situation or was he going to receive honor in this situation? And again, for an ancient culture, those are not feelings. You need to think about shame and honor as almost something tangible, something you could like actually receive, like a hot potato. You got shame, you wanted to get that to someone else real fast. Honor you wanted to embrace. It was much more tangible than we think about it as modern Westerners. He wanted to avoid that at all costs. How could he cast her off without losing face? How could he get rid of Haman without losing face? Especially since it's his decree with his seal on it that he approved. So Xerxes is out in the garden probably thinking about these things. The text doesn't know. I'm speculating. I admit that, but it seems to fit. Meanwhile, Haman is all out of sorts. He forgets basic court etiquette. He should have followed the king out of the room. That's like 101 orientation to new palace service right there. No one was allowed to be alone with the queen, period. And even if other men were around, no one was allowed to be within seven steps of the queen, period. So when Xerxes comes back in, he he sees Haman literally in the act of falling down before her on the couch, begging for his life. 
Esther's persuasion earlier had worked because Xerxes chooses, does by instinct or sees an opportunity. We don't know. I don't want to read motives into it. He chooses to see what's happening there as something bad. The word he uses there is for assault. He actually says, is he going to assault right in front of me? He sees a convenient way out of his dilemma. He's broken the law publicly. Now I can punish him and save face. And so Xerxes asks his question out loud. Is he assaulting the queen right in front of me, right in my own house? You know, God isn't mentioned in Esther. But last week we saw all those coincidences where these, it just so happens at this point, it just so happens, it just so happens, you can see God playing chess with his providence. And so too, right here, we don't know how long Xerxes was walking around in the garden fuming. We don't know how long Haman had been begging. But it just so happens that he walks in just in time to see Haman violating a major taboo about being near the queen. And so Xerxes asks the question. His official attendants hear that question as, a, as an official edict of condemnation, and they put the execution hood over Haman's head. I mean, isn't it scary how fast this happens? Remember, this is Xerxes who, behind his throne, dudes with axes ready to chop off anybody who came in uninvited. They take this stuff very seriously. And I love how, you know, Haman is clearly, obviously, very popular within the, the inner court. I love how all of a sudden one of the guys leans down and goes, Hey, Xerxes, remember that guy Mordecai, you, like a couple hours ago, you just had honored because he saved your life? Um, Haman was going to kill him, and the gallows are still in front of his house. So just saying. And, and Xerxes is like, yes, do that. And Haman is no more. I mean, it's almost anticlimactic it happens so fast, right? I mean, Esther got it done. Okay, good, let's go home. As I was thinking about this, man, there's something really huge here for, for us. We need to remember this. You know, culture, empire wants to keep Christians out of the public square. We get that pressure. We feel that pressure. We, we know that pressure. They want us to be content with our little religious hobby. Don't bring that stuff out here. And evangelicals, technically we're not part of them, but we get lumped in, so we'll just take it, you know, get a bad rap for striving after political power. But it's precisely because God put Esther in a position of political power that she was right where God could use her. So don't listen to that pastor on the podcast, the radio tells you God doesn't care how you vote. Yeah, he does. Political powers are used by God to help his people. We'll see the exact same thing next week with Mordecai. With enough politics, back to theology. The chapter ends with this really profound comment in verse 10. It says, the wrath of the king abated. Abated, appeased, pacified, satisfied. See, there's this, there's this ancient understanding of justice that we've lost in, in our culture. And it's the idea, it's a big theological word. Are you ready? Here we go. It's called propitiation. And what propitiation means, it, it it's a religious term today. It was not a religious term back then. It basically means two things. To absorb the wrath of an offense, or to absorb the punishment, excuse me, of an offense, and then to turn away the wrath for an offense. And the key thing about propitiation is it, it brings that wrath part in there. It brings the personal part of justice in. It brings the personal part that says, when you've committed an offense, you've not only broken an objective standard, you have violated someone's personhood. 
and that person has wrath against you because you violated them. So propitiation somehow turns that wrath away. And that's what we see here. Empire is all about propitiation because Haman's death propitiates the king. His wrath is now turned away. Cancel culture that we're dealing with today, right from Empire's playbook, is all about propitiation. You make an offense, you bear your sins, you are canceled, treated as dead for your sins against culture's value, and culture's wrath is abated, it's turned away. Cancel culture is in a desperate grasp at this idea of propitiation. Empire pours out its wrath on the unrighteous. It cancels those who sin against it. But that's all it has. That's it. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. Because empire's propitiation is powerless. It's self-serving. And we see that right here. Xerxes has outrage over an attack upon his queen, which is an attack upon him. As soon as Haman is dead, though, Xerxes is good. He's like, all right, let's go. It's, it's back to party time. He doesn't even care that his wife is dead legally in 11 months. Doesn't even occur to him. Doesn't cross his mind. Because just like our cancel culture, it's, a, it's punishment of a personal offense. Xerxes was personally offended by Haman. Haman has paid the price. Xerxes' wrath is gone. It's not actually about the positive protection of others. And we need to be careful. I don't, I don't want to be like, yeah, so those cancel culture people out there. We need to be careful because cancel culture is in us, isn't it? We know it is. You offend me. Man, I want to punish you. I do. I'm sorry because it makes me feel better. That's empire's propitiation. That's not how Jesus empowers his people to be. We're going to see more about that in a little bit. So the king's wrath has been abated. Now it's time for empire to do damage control. Let's look at the last two verses of our text, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, where we see the king's reward. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Esther is given ownership and control of Haman's estate. We know from archaeological records, you know, remember back in history, the Code of Hammurabi, kind of like one of the first significant lawgivers. Persia had all these laws, and one of their laws was if you were convicted or executed of treason, the state got your state. So the fact that Xerxes grabs this and gives it to Esther, he's publicly proclaiming Haman was a traitor, publicly making his choice. She introduces her adoptive father, Mordecai, to Xerxes. He already knows of it. She says, now what is he to me? He's my adoptive father. Xerxes makes him the new prime minister in Haman's place because it just so happens it was brought to his mind how much Mordecai had done for him. Esther follows suit, makes him his, her account manager for all of Haman's wealth. And this is amazing. The predatory Persian empire now has an openly Jewish queen and an openly Jewish vizier, both of whom are still going to be legally assassinated in 11 months. See, this shows us something both about empire and about God. Empire doesn't really care. It just does what's best for it. Xerxes makes his favoring of Esther an official, 
He confiscates, gives it to her. He, he, he makes Mordecai's favor official by making him the grand vizier, the prime minister, we would say. And in his mind, they should all be good now. He doesn't even think about their pending legally required deaths because he's fine. His wrath's been turned away. Empire's all about itself. You should be good, right? And it also shows us something about God. This is, if you'll allow me to put it this way, this is vintage God. This is so much like his character. He is loving and he is kind and he lavishes grace on his people. He doesn't just provide deliverance. He pours out blessing. Why? Because he likes to bless his people. He's not the aloof, cratchety old man in the sky who's like, I don't want to give you anything. He loves to give things. I mean, God has proven his extravagance twice a day. Watch a sunrise and tell me God doesn't think of extravagance. Watch a sunset and all the colors. God loves extravagance. And God is faithful to his covenant people. God promised ages ago to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And Esther and Mordecai stand right in that bloodline. And so Haman's demise came about because he ran smack dab into the negative results of covenant. Haman was cursed of God. God channeled his wrath through Xerxes' wrath to take out Haman. Now, we may be uncomfortable with that reality. You can't talk about God's wrath. No, don't do that. There's a big part of us, isn't it, wants God to be the big marshmallow in the sky who grades on a curve, right? We want him. But the harder parts of God's character are actually the anchors of our hope. God is a great king who, just like Xerxes, has wrath for those who violate his person. This entire chapter, we could recapitulate and reinterpret it looking at the work of Jesus. Because just as Esther had to make Haman into Xerxes' problem, so too God makes our sin his problem. And he has a plan to do something about it. So back in the fall, as I'm getting to know my neighbors, it's really hard to move to somewhere new in COVID and get to know neighbors because some neighbors are like, well, back up. And others are like, you know, let's, let's talk and get close. So anyway, uh, uh, I don't want to say too much, but one of my neighbors back in the fall was wearing a yarmulke, the little hat that Jewish people wear. And I noticed it several days in a row. And I was like, wait, why is he doing this now? I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's Rosh Hashanah. It's the, the Yom Kippur is coming up. So I was out at the mailbox. He came out and I reintroduced myself, called him by his first name, and said, hey, I, I don't know how to say what I want to say, but I just want to wish you a meaningful Rosh Hashanah. And he stopped and looked at me and goes, thanks. How do you know about that? <laughs> and I said, well, I said, I'm a pastor. Old Testament's kind of my wheelhouse. And we talked back and forth. He found out I was here at Sycamore. And he goes, you know, this is really interesting because usually we're the bad guys in your story. And that's, I know it's funny, but it's sad too. Here's this guy's like, oh, I'm the bad guy. You're, like, he thinks my entire life is telling how his people murdered my, my Messiah, is what he means. That's typically the story. And I'm not that quick-witted. Those of you who've actually had a conversation with me, you know that's true. And so the Spirit kind of just inspired me this moment. I went, no way, man. We're the bad guys. That's why we need Jesus. And it's very quickly, it was like, you know, because we're, we're all sinners. A real quick, you know, elevator pitch gospel to, to him. But I want to land there because, dear flock, as we read this text, I hope you realize we are Haman. We're selfish. We're proud. We're in it for ourselves. And the great king has wrath against his enemies, us. 
And we see here in this text, Xerxes is not a perfect king. He does not have perfect wrath. He will not bring in a perfect justice. Haman was cursed and hung, probably actually impaled on an early form of the cross, not actually hanging like we think of it. He was, he was impaled for his offense against Xerxes, but by his death, a way was opened up for Esther to save her whole people. And so too for us, our sin, the sin of all people, is an offense against God himself. He takes it personally. Because the law is not just something that God has added. The law is an expression of God's character. That's why Martin Luther said you never break commandments 2 through 10 without first breaking commandment 1. You shall have no other gods before me. Because you say, no, I want to worship the God who lets me murder. So I'm going to say, no, I'm going to worship this God. And I'm going to walk in this behavior. You always choose another God before you break one of God's commandments. So the, the creator, the God who is the law, takes it personally our offenses against him. But in fulfillment of the promises of God, Jesus Christ himself was hung on a tree. Not impaled on a gallows, but hung, nailed to a cross for our offenses. By his death, he accomplished redemption for his people, absorbing the punishment, and turning away the wrath that we deserve. I'm going to zoom in on a couple of New Testament verses. We have them up on a slide. We also have them on your uh, front of your bulletin if you want to read there. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25. Famous verse for those of you who've been around church more than about seven seconds, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma. Always say the word comma there, by the way, when you say this ver- verse out loud or in your head, because it's not a period. The thought doesn't end there. I know it's really powerful, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But see, if you add comma, then it it makes it more gentle because there's more to come. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's that word, to be received by faith. See, what makes Christianity unique is that another bears the sin. Another propitiates for you. Another turns away the wrath you earned. Jesus absorbed the punishment our sins deserved. He turned away the wrath against God's person our sin deserved. Our sin was the problem and Jesus is the solution. And so too God's reward is Jesus. In the gospel we get Jesus. Jesus' life becomes our life, his life of full obedience. The attractive life of righteousness before God becomes ours when we place our faith and trust in him. God looks upon us as beloved children. He doesn't look upon us as the Hamans we are. He looks upon us as the sons and daughters he makes us into. What if you actually believe that? Wouldn't that be amazing? Just as Mordecai is brought before Xerxes and blessed because of who he is to Esther, so too in the gospel we are brought before the great king, God the Father, and introduced as his children because of who we are in Jesus. United to Jesus by faith, what is true of him is true of us. This is the reality of the covenant-keeping God. This is the message of Christianity. So even in this moment, If you don't know this Savior this way, even in this moment, I would encourage you to flee from everything you've called religion. 
Flee from everything that your grandma, no offense, taught you about you know, Christianity and instead simply cling to Jesus and place your faith and trust in Him. It's the only means between you and the Creator. Rest in the grace and the peace that He offers you. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I put so much other stuff in front of the gospel. I put behavior, I put attire, I put entertainment tastes. And Lord, I try to make those evidence of the gospel instead of simply calling people to place their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, forgive me. Lord, would you give us all the wisdom of Esther, Lord, to know how to accommodate, to take good things off the table so we can talk about the best thing on the table, salvation in Jesus Christ. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us relationships with with non-Christians that you might use us to spread your kingdom? And Lord, would you help us all in our hearts to not listen to the voice of the accuser that often reminds us that we're Haman's deserving death. Instead, Lord, would you help us to hear the voice of of love, your voice, calling us to faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would do all these things, Lord, in Jesus' great name. Amen.